All right, let's uh, let's begin. So we are. Uh, David gave me a great build-up for this lesson, and uh, so he set the bar pretty high. We've gone through the previous nine plagues, and now we're up to the ultimate plague, the tenth plague, the Passover, the plague of the firstborn. Jews have been in Egypt for 400 years, and um, God has sent Moses to let the people go, and Pharaoh doesn't want to let them go, so he sent nine plagues, and we hit the seventh, eighth, and ninth plague in the last lesson on locusts, uh, on uh, on hail and with fire and locusts and then darkness. Now this is the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn son, also known as the Passover. Um, and in the last lesson at the end of chapter ten, Pharaoh said, "Moses, I don't ever want to see your face again. And in the day that you see my face." You're a dead man. So this is uh, this is how things were left off between Moses and Pharaoh. So let's start reading Exodus chapter 11 in verse 1. I'm reading from the Orthodox Study Bible, which is based on the Septuagint, but uh, I think most Bibles will be very similar to this. Exodus chapter 11. And uh, we'll read the whole chapter. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring yet one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here. Speak now secretly in the hearing of the people and let everyone ask from his neighbor articles of silver and gold and clothing. So the Lord gave the people grace in the sight of the Egyptians And they lent to them. Moreover, the man Moses was very great before the Egyptians and before Pharaoh and all his servants. Then Moses said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servants behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall there be like it again. But against not even one of the descendants of Israel, be it man or cattle, shall a dog snarl its tongue, that you may know that the Lord shall make a wide distinction between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Go from here and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you that I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these signs and wonders in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel depart from the land of Egypt. So Moses announces to Pharaoh what is going to happen in the last plague beforehand. So he says that the Lord's going to bring one more plague over Egypt, and this is going to be the last one. After this, Pharaoh will be forced to let Israel go. In fact, Pharaoh will drive them out. 
And Moses then speaks secretly to the Israelites, telling them, ask your Egyptian neighbors for articles of silver and gold and clothing. And it says the Lord gives the people grace in the sight of the Egyptians. The Egyptians lend these things to the Jews. And uh, uh, then it says that uh, Moses was seen at this point as a great man by Pharaoh, by his servants, and by all the Egyptians. So Moses is very highly regarded. Moses warns Pharaoh of what's going to happen in this last plague. He says the Lord's going to go out throughout all the land of Egypt at midnight and kill the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians, all the way from the throne, Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the lowliest maidservant in the, in the land. And even the firstborn of all their livestock will be killed in this last plague. And uh, the firstborn here, as we'll see later in Exodus 13, verses 11 to 16, is referring to the firstborn males specifically. And on in contrast, none of the Israelites and none of their livestock will be harmed at all by what happens. And then Pharaoh's men will beg the Israelites to depart. So, Pharaoh still doesn't bend. He's got a hard heart, and Moses departs in anger here. Uh, Now, it says that the Israelite slaves will depart with silver, gold, and clothing of the Egyptians. This fulfills a promise that was given back in Exodus 3, back at Mount Sinai. He says that, he tells Moses that you're going to bring the people out of Egypt, and when they leave, they will plunder the Egyptians, taking with them articles of gold and silver and clothing. So this is fulfillment of something that was promised earlier. Um, and there's one word that got my attention in this passage here, reading reading from, from the, uh, the Septuagint version. He says that God gave grace to the, uh, to the, to the Israelites. The Israelites had grace in the eyes of the Egyptians. And I, th- I wondered, is this the same word that's so, so famously used in the New Testament, in the, in the Old Testament Greek, is it the same word? And it is. It's the, the word is uh, charis, which is the same Greek word we find in Exodus, I'm sorry, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is the famous passage that uh, you've been saved by, by grace through faith. Um, and uh, so one of the reasons I'm interested in reading the Old Testament from the Septuagint is that all the same words that appear, a lot of the same words that appear in the New Testament first show up in the Old Testament. So I'm interested when Paul is using this expression, what did he mean and how did people understand it? And so we see this word shows up both in Exodus chapter 3 when God first tells Moses what's going to happen. He says, I will give the people grace in the sight of the Egyptians. And then here in chapter 11 and verse 3, the same word, chorus. Uh, David Rousseau has a lesson, grace, the most misunderstood word in the Bible. And uh, here we, this is actually helpful in understanding what the word means. He says, I'll give people grace in the sight of the Egyptians. And from that, we would understand from the two places mentioned here, grace just means favor. The the Egyptians are going to look favorably on them. So it doesn't mean unmerited favor, it just means favor. I'll give them, I'll give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Um, it's the same thing in Proverbs 3, 37. It's also in Septuagint. Peter quotes that in 1 Peter 5, 
the Lord opposes the proud or the arrogant, and he gives grace to the humble. So the, he gives favor to the humble. It doesn't mean it's regardless of what you do. You decide, are you, are you going to be humble? And God will give you favor. If you're going to be proud or arrogant, God won't. He's going to oppose you. So uh, it doesn't mean that it has nothing to do with anything you do. It just means uh, uh, favor. So that's the same word. So when we read... We, if we know what the word means, it just means favor. It doesn't mean unmerited favor. Uh, when it says, when, when Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it's a gift from God, not of works, so no one should boast. Uh, what he means is, is, the word just means favor, is that we're saved by God's favor. That God's, that it's the kindness of God, the same, the same word, the same idea. We're saved by God's kindness. We're saved by God's, by God's favor. That's what the word grace means as we see it here, and it's used dozens of other places in the Old Testament as well. So I uh, just wanted to make a point about that. Uh, and one of the things I noticed uh, right before this in chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, Pharaoh says, you'll never see my face again. And then chapter 11, Moses shows up and he's talking with Pharaoh again. So I'm trying to think, well, how does this make sense? I'm not sure. I can think of three possibilities. One is Pharaoh was just blowing off steam when he said that. He's making an empty threat. You know, if I ever see your face again, I'm going to kill you. You're going to die. So that's one possibility is that Pharaoh was making an empty threat. Um, the other possibility is that this discussion in Exodus chapter 11 immediately follows what's going on in Exodus chapter 10. It's all part of the same exchange. Or the other possibility is that maybe in some way Moses was communicating with Pharaoh, but not seeing him face to face. So I don't know which of those it is, but I notice, I notice strange things like that. They, they, they kind of they stop me and I have to think about them. Uh, so somehow all this, this fits together. I want to continue reading in Exodus chapter 12, the first 14 verses. Now here, the details of the Passover are first laid out. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of the month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the family households, a lamb for each home. If there be too few in a household, let him and his neighbors next to his house take it according to the number of souls. He will make his count in lambs according to the needs of each one. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep, or the kids. The sheep would be from the lambs, the kids would be from the goats. So it could be either either species here. Then you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Now, please pay attention to every single detail here. Don't let anything escape your notice. They're all important. Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. They shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its heads with its legs and its entrails." 
You shall let none of it remain until morning, nor shall you break a bone of it. For what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Pascha. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute vengeance. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. So uh, there's a lot here in the details. And I want to just go through the details here so we don't miss anything. And then later on we'll we'll talk about uh, the significance of these things in connection with Christ. So he says, select one male lamb per household on the 10th day of the month. It can be from the sheep or the goats, but it's to be a one-year-old without blemish. The whole assembly of Israel does to sacrifice the lamb at twilight on the 14th day of the month. And this is going to be, this month will now be the first month of the year for the Jews. Take the blood of this lamb that was slain at that special time, put it on the door frames on, on the, the, the sides, the, the, the two doorposts and the lintel, which, which goes over the top of the doorframe, and the house where you're eating the meal. Then he says, you eat the, the, the meat, the flesh of that lamb that night. And the lamb, he gives very specific instructions about how they are to cook the lamb. He says, it must be roasted over fire. You can't eat it raw and you can't boil it. He said it must be roasted whole. The head, the legs, and even the, 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 uh, the insides. I mean, normally when you, when you cook an animal, you cut the head off because you're not going to eat that, and you, you take out the guts on the inside. But it says, no, you roast the entire animal over the fire. Um, and you eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. None of it is to remain until morning. If there's anything, you don't have any leftovers the next day, okay? None of it is to remain until morning. You eat it that night, and whatever you don't eat is to be burned in the fire. And then he also says, and you can't break any of its bones. Very specific and unusual instructions. And they're to eat it in a very strange manner. He says, you're to eat it in haste as if you're prepared to depart immediately on a moment's notice. So you eat this with the sandals on your feet. And normally you go into a house, particularly in those days, the feet, the, the, the streets are real dirty and you've got animal manure in the streets, everything else. So you, normally you take your shoes off and you wash your feet when you go into a house. But he says, no, you're going to eat with the sandals on your feet as if you're ready to go on a moment's notice, belt on your waist and, this, and your staff in your hand, which is a, that's a kind of a clumsy way to eat also. Uh, but he gives very specific instructions, and he says, That night the Lord will pass through Egypt, striking down all the firstborn of the land, not only the firstborn of Pharaoh, but the firstborn of all the Egyptians, and even the firstborn of all the animals of the Egyptians. 
However, uh, there will come no harm to the Israelites. And it says, the Lord will execute vengeance on all the gods of Egypt at this night. The Lord will pass over the houses where he sees the blood, and the blood shall be a sign for the people. All these things are important. And then he says, not only do you do this this one night, but every year after that, you're to celebrate in the same manner. Uh, I want to read, continue reading. He talks about the uh, unleavened bread, which is very significant as well. Let's read verses 15 down to 20. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. Whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No servile work shall be done on them, and whatever must be done by each soul, this only shall be done by you. So you shall keep this commandment, for on this day I will bring your army out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is unleavened, so, I'm sorry, whoever eats what is leavened, that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. So, starting from the Passover is the 14th day of the month. So, he says, for the, starting on that day, for the next seven days until the 21st of the month, the people are to remove all leaven or all yeast from their homes. They have to get it out of their houses. And anyone who eats anything leavened during that time is going to be cut off from their people. The first day and the last day of this was a special convocation, and they are to observe this along with the Passover. There's to observe this feast of the unleavened bread as well. So you think, wow, this is why is God so agitated about a little yeast? I mean, they can eat it the rest of the year. Why such a big deal? And it, it, it's extreme punishment. He says, you'll be cast out of the community. You'll be cut off from, the, from the, God's people if you do this. So this is, this is to be repeated annually as well. Uh, now I want to read a longer passage about what actually happened. So this is all preparation. This is all instruction. Then what happens the night of the Passover and the instructions to follow. And then I want to talk about the significance of these things for us, both in terms of foreshadowing and also some, some practical lessons that we should learn from this. So I'm going to read a, a longer passage starting in verse uh, 21. So, so this, now we're moving into the actual experience of the Passover. Verse 21, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go away and take a lamb for yourselves according to your families and sacrifice the Pascha. Then you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood in the basin. But none of you shall go out from the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood and the lintel 
and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass by the doors and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. Now you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your children forever. So if you enter the land the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. Thus it shall be when your children say to you, what does this service mean? You shall say, this is the paschal sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the house of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed down and worshiped. Then the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Verse 29. Now it came to pass at midnight, the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive woman in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the cattle. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in all the land of Egypt. For there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called from Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as you said. Take also your sheep and oxen and go. And bless me as well. The Egyptians also urged the people so as to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Thus the children of Israel did as Moses commanded them, and they asked from the Egyptians articles of silver and gold and clothing. Now the Lord gave the people grace in the sight of the Egyptians, who lent it to them. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides their belongings. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with sheep, oxen, and a great deal of cattle. Then they baked unleavened cakes of dough, which they brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because the Egyptians drove them out and they could not remain, nor had they prepared for themselves provisions for the journey. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt and in the land of Canaan was 430 years. Then it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, the entire army of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt by night. It is a night of vigil to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of vigil to the Lord for all the children of Israel throughout the generations. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the law of the Pascha. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant bought with money. When you circumcise him, he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of the children of Israel shall keep it. But when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Lord's Pascha, let his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and sacrifice it, and he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native-born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So it came to pass on the very same day the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt with their army. 
Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me all the firstborn, the first begotten, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man and cattle, it is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you're going out in the month of the new grains, it shall be. When the Lord your God brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Girgasites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there shall be a feast of the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your regions. Then you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord my God did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall be a sign to you on your hand, and is a memorial before your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord God brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this law according to the times and seasons from year to year. Then it shall be, when the Lord your God brings you into the land of the Canaanites, he swore to your fathers and gives to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every male, everything that opens the womb from the herds or from your cattle, as many as you shall have, you shall sanctify the males to the Lord. But every offspring that opens the womb of the donkey, you shall exchange for a sheep. If you will not exchange, you will redeem it. And every firstborn of man uh, uh, from among your sons, you shall redeem. So it shall be when your sons ask you in time to come, saying, What is this? That you shall say to him, With a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thus it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go. The Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both firstborn of man and firstborn of cattle. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the wound, but all firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and immovable before your eyes, for with a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So, amen. Let's uh, Now let's process what we just read there. So, uh, Lord tells Israel, all right, I told you, uh, through Moses tells Israel, tells the elders, now it's time. Now it's time to sacrifice the lamb that you set aside. He repeats the earlier instructions and he, he, he urges the people, he says, after the lamb is sacrificed and you put the blood on the door of the house, you must remain inside the house. If you go out of the house, you're going to die with the Egyptians. So he gives very strict instructions about that. It's very important. You're going to perish if you go outside the house that's protected with the blood. At midnight, the Lord strikes down all the firstborn of Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron's and bids them to leave immediately and says, take your livestock with you. And Pharaoh even asks for a blessing here. Uh, there are, the, uh, the Egyptians are afraid that the firstborn died. If the Israelites stick around, maybe all of them are going to die. So they're, they're terrified of the Lord as uh, based on what's just happened here. The Israelites depart in haste, taking the gold, silver, and clothing from the Egyptians. And they also carry unleavened bread. They're in a hurry. They don't have time to leaven the bread. They carry unleavened bread, dough uh, in, in bowls on their shoulders. 
After 430 years in captivity, this is the night of their departure. It says 600,000 men depart besides the women and children and all the cattle. And it says a mixed multitude. So there are some Gentiles who sneak out with the Egypt with the Israelites. They decided that they wanted, this is their opportunity to get out as well. Maybe they fear the Lord too. So others leave with them um, that are not Jews. And the, uh, the Passover and unleavened bread regulations are repeated. And it says here that the non-Jews can participate in this if they choose, but they must be circumcised first. So it's not just for the Jews, but the, the, uh, the, the, the males must be circumcised as well if they want to be part of that. And then it says, uh, as a result of what's happened here in the future, all the firstborn males, because the firstborn males were killed, that, that God says all the firstborn males going forward are to be dedicated to me and are to be redeemed. Um, now, so all the details are important. Now, keep in mind, this happened 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus. One question I'll throw out there. It says that it says, so somebody or something went out through Egypt and killed all of the firstborn. And if you've seen movies with a dramatization of that, usually maybe it's a scary cloud or an angel or something like that that goes in and slips under the door, the the door uh, houses of the Egyptians. But when it sees the blood over the houses of of the door frames of the uh, the Jews, it, it, it goes away. So question I have for you is who or what was it who killed the Egyptians? Was it the Lord? Was it an angel? Because in one place, the Lord says, I'm going to do it. In another place, it says the destroyer went out there. So who was it who went in? Um, just think about that. Whether you think it's, it's the Lord himself, whether it's God who went there, it's an angel of death that he sent. Um, so as you're thinking about that, let's turn to uh, Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 18. <clears throat> Wisdom of Solomon, in the middle of chapter 18, it talks quite a bit about this plague of God sending death onto the Egyptians. And I'll pick it up uh, in verse 11. This is talking about the plague of the death of the firstborn. Uh, first, first, uh, Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 18, and verse 11. It says, The servant was punished with the same penalty as the master, and the common man suffered the same thing as the king. They all together, by the one name of death, had innumerable dead persons, for there were not enough living even to bury them, because in one critical moment their valued children were destroyed. For they disbelieved everything because of their sorceries. But at the destruction of their firstborn, they acknowledged the people to be God's son. For while gentle silence embraced everything, and night at its own speed was half over, your all-powerful word leapt 
from heaven, from the royal throne, into the midst of a doomed land, a relentless warrior carrying the sharp sword of your irrevocable command. He stood and filled all things with death and touched heaven while standing on the earth. Then immediately apparitions and terrifying dreams troubled them, and unexpected fears set upon them. They threw themselves to the ground half dead. It continues from there. So, so who was it, according to the wisdom of Solomon, who came down and brought death into the houses of the Egyptians? It says, your all-powerful word leapt from heaven from the royal throne. This is, you know, we think of the word of God. We think, where's the first place in the Bible where it talks about the word of God? Well, John chapter 1. In, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. But actually talks about it here in Wisdom of Solomon. It says that the word of God leapt from the throne. So here we have a reference to the word of God, which we know is the son of God. And this may be a difficult uh, idea. When we think about the Son of God, this is an aspect of the Son of God that uh, is terrifying, honestly. It says, the word, your all-powerful word leapt from heaven from the royal throne in the midst of a doomed land, a relentless warrior carrying a sharp sword. I mean, this reminds me of the picture of Jesus, the word of God, who is riding on the horse, leading the armies of God, and the sword coming out of his mouth to destroy the enemies. I mean, it's the same word of God, but this is the picture. The word of God is a is a one who brings about judgment, one who is to be feared. So we see this is this is the word of God, the Son of God, making an appearance and killing the firstborn of all of the, the land of Egypt. So this is a, a definitely... Uh, helps me to see what's happening in, in, a, in a different light here. Um, the whole story of the Passover lamb, Christians recognize, is foreshadowing Jesus and what he did for us. And the references to this throughout the New Testament. For example, in John chapter 1 and verse 29, where John the Baptist first approaches Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a, this is a reference pointing back to the, the Lamb that was sacrificed that, that helped the people. Um, in Acts chapter 8, when the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from the scroll of Isaiah, He's reading the passage where it says he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. That's in Acts 8, 32, quoting from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. So uh, this is another reference to the lamb that was sacrificed for the sins of many. Also in Revelation chapter 5, let's turn there. Revelation chapter 5, starting at verse 4, the, the writer says, So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open or read the scroll or look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And down in verse 8 it says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, that are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. So this is, this is the lamb that was slain. The one who was the only one who was worthy to open the scroll. This is a picture of Jesus uh, in, in symbolic terms. It says, you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. It's obviously, it's a reference pointing back to the Passover lamb that was slain that redeemed the people to God. Uh, so let's think about in the story here, the details of the story that we just read through. The New Testament clearly points to Jesus as being the fulfillment that he is the lamb of God, the lamb that was slain, the Passover lamb. So, Let's go back and take a look at the details here and see how they line up. First of all, it says it must be a male lamb, and it must be a lamb without defect. And of course, Jesus says in Hebrews 4.15 that he was like us, but he was without sin. So he was the lamb, the male lamb without defect. One lamb chosen per household. And it says if you don't have very many people in your house, you gather together with, with your neighbors, and so you would, you would, have, you would share that together. So it would be uh, one lamb per household. Everyone eats lamb, but there's one per household. Uh, very specific. It says it could be from among the sheep or the goats. In Matthew 25, Jesus uses the, the illustration of sheep and goats to represent all people. All kinds of people, the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Uh, he's sacrificed by all the Jewish people at twilight, at the start of the feast of the unleavened bread. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus. That Jesus was sacrificed on Friday, on Good Friday, at the time of the feast of the unleavened bread, the past season of the Passover, and the, uh, he, when he is on the cross, the God brings darkness over the land until the time that he expires, so he, he dies at twilight. The other, the other detail here about when he gives instructions about the lamb. Now, if you wanted to have a lamb dinner, you'd put the grill out in the backyard and you would have a butchered lamb, and you might put the legs on the grill or you might put the, uh, you know, some, some, uh, chops on the grill or something like that. You put cuts of meat that you would want to eat on the grill, but you wouldn't roast the entire lamb, including the, the guts on the inside and the head. But God says, no, you have to, you have to cook it that way and it can't be boiled. It's got to be roasted over the fire, the entire animal. So, um, and I think about Jesus's death on the cross is that his entire body was nailed to the cross and he suffered scourging and the crown of thorns and crucifixion. Uh, 
It was a brutal death of suffering. And I can see that being foreshadowed by an entire animal being roasted in fire. Um, The flesh of the lamb is to be eaten by the community as a memorial meal to be repeated over and over again every year. Obviously, Jesus said at the Last Supper, this is my body which is given up for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When Christians gather together, we eat the bread, and which represents the body of Christ. Uh, so we are we are eating the flesh of the lamb uh, that was that was crucified that was that was that was sacrificed on our behalf, and the whole community does that, and we do it regularly, again and again. The other thing is it's eaten in haste. Now I hadn't noticed this before, but he says you must eat it in haste with your sandals on your feet, the staff on your hand. It's like you're ready to go at a moment's notice. Well. What's the significance of that? Why did God insist that they eat it in that unusual manner instead of just relaxing and enjoying a meal together like you normally would? Well, Cyprian pointed out that this passage was foreshadowing. There's a reason why it says you must eat it in haste. And he's talking about the attitudes. This is in a a passage. He's talking about um, why Christians need to be detached from the world, not caught up in the world, and basically ready to go, ready to depart on a moment's notice. So he quotes from this passage here. He says, it says in Exodus, you shall eat with your loins gird, shoes on your feet, your staff in your hands, and eat it in haste because it's the Lord's Passover. So he quotes this, and he says, Of this same thing, the gospel according to Matthew says, take no thought saying, what should we eat? What should we drink? Or what shall we be clothed with? For these things the nations seek after. But your father knows you need these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Likewise, in the same place, don't give any heed to tomorrow for tomorrow shall take care of itself. Sufficient is the day for its own evil. Likewise, in the same place, No one looking back and putting his hand in the plow is fit for the kingdom. And in the same place, behold the fowl of heaven. They don't sow or reap or gather in barns and your heavenly father feeds them. Are are you not more of more value than they? Concerning the same thing, according to Luke, let your loins be girded and your lamps burning. And be like men that are waiting for their Lord that when he comes from the wedding and knocks, they may open to him. Blessed are the servants whom their Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. So this is the picture, is that we need to be detached from the world, waiting for the Lord to come, waiting for the signal, ready to go at a moment's notice, whether we are called individually from this life or if the Lord returns. That's from uh, Cyprian's uh, Three Books of Testimonies Against the Jews, Book 3, Chapter 11, and I Seen Fathers, Volume 5, pages uh, 535-536. So it's a lesson. Eat it in haste as you're ready to go at a moment's notice. Um, My brother Chris Traganos departed just a little over a week ago, and uh, Thanks to God, I believe he was a man who was ready to go. He he was he was prepared. He was um, he he was looking for the the uh, uh, he was looking for the time of departure. And uh, may we all 
be ready to go and have the same attitude. Um, He says also, None of its bones were to be broken. Now, when you're having a lamb dinner, why do you? Why would God be specific about saying, "Look, now and for the next thousand years, whenever you're whenever you're observing this, don't break any of the bones of the lamb dinner that you're eating. You have to cook the the lamb whole, but you can't break any of its bones." Well, and obviously, when Jesus died on the cross, they broke the legs of the two thieves that were crucified on either side of him. But when they came to, to him, they found he was already dead. And he, they, so the, the soldier put a spear into his heart and to confirm that he was dead. But none of his bones were broken in fulfillment of this foreshadowing of Christ and also of the prophecy. The meal is to be eaten with bitter herbs. Uh, now think about Jesus was offered vinegar and gall to drink. And he was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. So the, the whole idea that you eat this with bitter herbs, you're not eating this with, with honey and sugar coating with this meal. There's something bitter about it. And then, of course, the blood of the lamb, the lamb that was slain, you take the blood and you put it over the door frame of the house and you stay in the house. The, the whole idea of the blood of Christ protecting us, protecting the Christians from the destroyer, protecting us from death. Uh, The death of the firstborn, uh, and Jesus being the the, the firstborn, the the only begotten Son of God, the firstborn of the Father. The whole idea that one, the life of one would be given to save many. We see that in Isaiah 53. And the substitution of the lamb, I think of the story of Genesis 22, where Abraham is prepared to offer Isaac and the, the, uh, a ram is substituted there at the end. The significance of the unleavened bread it says, for the next seven days you eat unleavened bread. And uh, God is very insistent. He says, anyone who eats leaven afterwards for the next seven days gets kicked out of the community, gets purged from the community. So uh, this is this is a very stiff penalty for something you may think is a relatively minor infraction. And they must follow this as well as the Passover meal observance. Now, the significance of this, the, the eating the uh, unleavened bread for the next seven days is explained to us by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. Let's turn there. In the Corinthian church, There was a problem with sexual immorality. Paul addresses several problems in the Corinthian church, and then he gets around to this problem here. And note how Paul explains why this is completely unacceptable and what they need to do about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. It's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you're puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, I, as absent in the body of the present and the spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, When you are gathered together along with my spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you need to go out of the world. But now I have written you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So, Paul is explaining here, the Passover lamb has been slain. Now we eat the bread without yeast. What is the, the Passover lamb is Jesus. He was he was he was crucified on the cross. So in this he's saying that this whole story here is foreshadowing something of tremendous significance for the for the Christians. The Passover lamb that was sacrificed represented Jesus. The blood of the lamb represents the blood of Christ. The unleavened bread that the people must eat from that point forward for the next seven days, it was referring to a life of getting the sin out. Yeast is like sin. Yeast, you put a little bit of, of yeast into a loaf. I mean, I've, I've made yeasted bread. You, you just take a little bit of yeast, but you put it in there. And keep, if you keep the dough warm and undisturbed, the yeast, just amazingly, the little microorganisms spread throughout the whole thing and cause the whole dough to rise. And it says that the yeast is like sin, which will spread and grow and take over. And it says that if you don't get rid of the leaven, it's going to corrupt the whole loaf of bread here. So, so that's the picture is the, 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 in Israel here was representing the church. What's the significance of seven? Well, seven is the number of completion. The world was created in seven days. So this is the completion of the creation. So it's basically until the end, from the time that Jesus is sacrificed, those who are following him until the end, in this case of our lives, we need to be getting the sin out of our own life. And also, if we're aware that others who are calling themselves Christians who are in our fellowship are involved in sins that would disqualify them from God, we have to put them out of the fellowship. That's what he's saying. You put them out of the community. And that was the reason why God gave such specific instructions to the Jews, because he's foreshadowing something of tremendous significance for us. I want to close with some thoughts that uh, David Sanabria is, is on the lesson here. And he passed along to me a little while ago uh, a, a work called uh, on the Pascha or on the Passion of, uh, of Christ is by Melito of Sardis. Melito was a bishop in, in Sardis in the early church. This is not in the uh, Ananicene Fathers. I think the text was found after that translation was made. So, so Melito is writing somewhere time between the year 169 and 195 AD. He said he's a bishop of Sardis. That's one of the seven churches in Asia Minor, so that would be in Turkey. Um, 
So it's early, early uh, Christian writing. It's not in the Ananising Fathers, but he wrote about... So it's a beautiful passage. I'd encourage uh, anyone to, to read this. I was surprised to find that my daughter had read, read it as a part of in a, a homeschooling uh, cooperative that she was a part of, my daughter and my son-in-law, which I was quite surprised to find out. But it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful writing, very understandable. You can find it online. And um, he starts, I want to give you a, a couple of selections from here. We're going to close with this. And uh, he starts uh, off talking about the, what it was like on the night that the firstborn died in Egypt. And he describes it in such beautiful poetic imagery in such a gripping way. I just wanted to start off by sharing the way he describes it much, much more beautifully than I possibly could. So this is the first thing is his his description of what happened the night of the, all the firstborn and died in Egypt. He said, indeed, one firstborn touching a dark body with his hand and utterly frightened in his soul cried out aloud in misery and in terror. What has my right hand laid hold of? At what does my soul tremble? Who cloaks my whole body with darkness? If you're my father, help me. If my mother feels sympathy for me, if my brother speak to me, if my friends sit with me, if my enemy go away from me since I'm the firstborn son. And before the firstborn was silent, the long silence held him in its power, saying, You are mine, O firstborn. I, the silence of death, am your destiny. And another firstborn, taking note of the capture of the firstborn, denied his identity that he might not die a bitter death. He says, I'm not a firstborn son. I was born the third child in my family. But he could not be, he who could not be deceived touched that firstborn. And he fell forward in silence. In a single moment, the firstborn fruit of the Egyptians was destroyed. The one first conceived of the firstborn, the one sought after, the one chosen, was dashed to the ground. Not only that of men, but of irrational animals as well. A lowing was heard in the fields of the earth of cattle, bellowing for their nurslings. A cow standing over her calf a mare over her colt, and the rest of the cattle, having just given birth to their offspring and swollen with milk, were lamenting bitterly and piteously for their firstborn. And there was a wailing and lamentation because of the destruction of men, because of the destruction of the firstborn who were dead. And all Egypt stank because of the unburied bodies. Indeed, one could see a frightful spectacle. Of the Egyptians, there were mothers with disheveled hair, fathers who'd lost their minds, wailing aloud in terrifying fashion the Egyptian tongue. O wretched persons that we are, we've lost our firstborn in a single moment, and they were striking their breasts with their hands, beating time in hammer-like fashion to the dance of the, for their dead. 
Such was the misfortune which encompassed Egypt. In an instant it made her childless. But Israel all the while was being protected by the sacrifice of the sheep and truly was being illumined by its blood which was shed. For the death of the sheep was found to be a rampart for the people. O inexpressible mystery! The sacrifice of the sheep was found to be the salvation of the people. And the death of the sheep became the life of the people, for its blood warded off the angel. Tell me, O angel, what turned you away? At the sacrifice of the sheep or the life of the Lord? At the death of the sheep or the type or foreshadowing of the Lord? At the blood of the sheep? Or the Spirit of the Lord. Clearly you were turned away because you saw the mystery of the Lord taking place in the sheep. The life of the Lord in the sacrifice of the sheep. The type of the Lord in the death of the sheep. For this reason you did not strike Israel. But it was Egypt alone that you made childless. Very stirring description a dramatization of what took place. And Melito Sarlis goes on to explain this, that this, this, the story of this, the lamb that was sacrificed and its blood protecting the people was like a model. And he explains this in the language of, and, and as an engineer, when, when, when I'm designing something, I'll first will be drawn on a piece of paper, or these days we'll make a 3D model of it before we, a small-scale 3D model on a computer before we build the entire facility. I remember when I went to Italy, to the Vatican, when I saw some famous statues, and they said, oh, by the way, here are the little models that the artists made before they made the full-scale statue. And sometimes they make it in wax, or they make it in clay or something else before they made it the full-scale model. And he uses this to explain the significance of the Passover lamb story. He says, what was the, the extraordinary mystery? It was Egypt struck to destruction, but Israel kept her salvation. Listen to the meaning of the mystery. Beloved, no speech or event takes place without a pattern or a design. Every event in speech involves a pattern, that which is spoken a pattern and that which happens a prefiguration. In order that the event is disclosed for the prefiguration, so also the speech may be brought to expression through its outline. So, for example, if you're giving a speech, you write an outline first and then you give the speech to follow. So you have the, the model and then you have the reality that follows it. He continues, without the model, no work of art arises. Is not that which is to come into existence seen through the model which typifies it? For this reason, a pattern of that which is to be made either out of wax or clay or wood, in order that by the smallness of the model destined to be destroyed, might be seen the thing which is to arise from it, higher than it in size mightier than it in power, more beautiful in appearance and more elaborate in ornamentation. So whenever the thing arises for which the model was made, then that which carried the image of the first things is destroyed is no longer of use, 
since it has, since it has transmitted its resemblance to that which by nature is true. Therefore, that which was once valuable is now without value because that which is truly valuable has appeared. For each thing has its own time, and there is a distinct time for the type. It is a distinct time for the material. There is a distinct time for the truth. You construct the model. You want this because you see it at the image of a future work. You procure the material for the model. You want this on account of which is going to arise from it. You complete the work and cherish it alone, for only in it do you see both type and truth. Therefore, if it was like this with the models of perishable objects, so indeed it will be with those which are imperishable objects. If it's like this with earthly things, so indeed it will be with heavenly things. For even the Lord's salvation and his truth were prefigured in the people and the teaching of the gospel proclaimed in advance in the law. So uh, this is the wonderful thing about the story here of the Passover lamb, is that God is creating a scale model, as if in wax or in clay or, or something, uh, uh, something where everything, it's a scale model which would then be fulfilled later on, 1,400 years later, with the sacrifice of Christ. And, and even all the details, the no, don't break the bones, the blood of the lamb, ro uh, roasting the whole body over the fire, the lamb without defect, uh, and then eating the unleavened bread for the next seven days. All of these things, it was a scale model of what has now been fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Amen.